I'm sitting there, bated breath. I texted, you know, Samer and I said, hey, get your family ready. Stand by. He goes, we're ready. And I'm getting ready to go. Oh, my God, I'm going to get him out. I'm going to get him out. Sergeant comes back 20 minutes later and goes, damn, sorry, man. That place is crawling with Taliban. We, we can't. They own that gate. I said, damn it. You know, five hours earlier, no one was there. And now the Taliban are tightening that noose. Welcome visionaries, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, leaders, and growth seekers of all types to the Passion Struck Podcast. Hi, I'm John Miles, a peak performance coach, multi-industry CEO, Navy veteran, and entrepreneur on a mission to make passion go viral for millions worldwide. And each week I do so by sharing with you an inspirational message and interviewing high achievers from all walks of life to unlock their secrets and lessons to becoming passion struck. The purpose of our show is to serve you, the listener, by giving you tips, tasks, and activities you can use to achieve peak performance and for two, a passion-driven life you have always wanted to have. Now, let's become passion struck. Welcome to episode 63 of the Passion Struck Podcast with retired Navy SEAL Commander, Dan O'Shea. And earlier today, we passed an incredible milestone for the podcast where we surpassed 100,000 downloads since we started in February of 2021. And thank you to all of you who have tuned in to our episodes to get us to this point in time. And also thank you for the 1200 plus five-star ratings that we have. Your support means so much and allows us to bring content like the episode you're going to hear today. And if you haven't been tuning in to our episodes during the month of September, they're all dedicated to veterans who serve in the 20 year war on terror. And so far this month, we have featured Blackhall Racing Team of veterans, Janet and Tony Blackhall, NASCAR driver, Tony Luigi, who is the first Naval Academy graduate and Naval officer to drive in NASCAR, former astronaut, Captain Wendy Lawrence. And in the future, we have episodes with current astronaut, Kayla Barron, retired Navy SEAL Commander, Mark Devine, retired Army Colonel and Navy SEAL, Dr. Bob Adams, and retired Navy SEAL, William Branham. So much incredible content throughout the month of September. I hope you check all those episodes out. Now let's get on with today's exclusive interview. And I'm gonna start it with two quotes. The first is from our guest today, Dan O'Shea, who said, what people have to understand is what SEALs train for is to go to war. It is inherently dangerous, and so is the preparation. I'm gonna do another quote today from former Navy SEAL, Jason Redman, who in his book, Trident, gave this quote. There was no higher calling in the military than to be called upon to rescue fellow American military members or citizens. It is what makes this country the superpower it is. I picked that because it is an incredible backdrop for today's episode. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about Dan O'Shea. Commander Dan O'Shea, a retired Navy SEAL, had more than 25 years of special operations experience, including multiple Middle East, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and Africa tours since 9-11. Dan is a subject matter expert in Islamic terrorism. Dan was the counterinsurgency advisor for the commander International Security Assistance Force, Afghanistan from 2011 to 2012. O'Shea established and served as the coordinator of the hostage working group at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, Iraq from 2004 to 2006. 
He expertly managed during that time the interagency coordination of more than 400 kidnapping incidents. Arriving at the height of the hostage-taking campaign that targeted more than 50 foreigners per month, by the end of his tour, foreign kidnappings in Iraq were in the single digits. Commander Dan O'Shea graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1991 and has a master's in executive leadership from the University of San Diego. He has been a military analyst for CNN, BBC, MSNBC, and Fox News. He also served as a producer on the Discovery Channel's Kidnap and Rescue series and was featured on National Geographic's Locked Up Abroad and Netflix's Captive series. Dan is the co-founder of the Tampa Bay Frogman Swim that has raised more than $6 million for the Navy SEAL Foundation supporting Navy SEALs wounded and killed in action since 9-11. And during our exclusive interview today, we discuss how he got involved in Operation Pineapple Express. And he tells the incredible story of survival as he guided an American citizen and his family of 14 out of Afghanistan over a 96 period of just sheer terror for that family. He talks about his decision to become a Navy SEAL, the biggest lessons that he learned from going through Bud's training. He goes through the organizational structure of the SEAL teams and his core as a platoon commander in SEAL Team 3. He goes into depth on his tour of duty in Iraq, where he was the coordinator of hostage rescues and goes into several of those that he was involved with, as well as his experience in Afghanistan and really hits home on how much the Afghanis who served along his side meant to his survival and those of so many other Americans who are alive today because they put themselves in harm's way. Why he is so adamant about never leaving a soldier behind. And he ends by describing the origin of the Frogman Swim, which he founded to benefit, as I said previously, the wounded and fallen Navy SEALs who served since 9-11. I am so privileged to have this special episode for you, and I hope you take the time to listen to all of it. Now, let's become passion struck. I am so excited to have my friend, Navy SEAL Commander Dan O'Shea on the podcast today. Welcome, Dan. Hey, John, how you doing? I am doing great. And I am so excited to not only bring your story to life, but also for the listeners and watchers to hear what really happened with Operation Pineapple Express. But I thought a really good starting point was for those who are listening, tuning in to learn a little bit more about your background, because I think that gives a lot more foundation for what you ended up doing uh, with Pineapple Express. So you and I went to the Naval Academy about the same time. You were a couple of years ahead of me, graduated in 91. What was that burning desire in you that made you want to take the leap to become a SEAL? Because I know at that time, it was before all these books were written and the SEALs were as well known as they are today. So, And there were very few billets back at that point in time. Yeah, the funny part is... Um summer, as you recall, I was in India company and they had the iron cleave competition, which I think everyone takes. It's a PT competition, pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, or run, I believe. And uh, I ended up being the iron India company champion. And I think I had one of the top 10 or top 20 scores of the entire brigade in terms of just PT, push-ups, sit-ups, and whatnot. 
And uh, my roommate was a prior Navy guy. His brother had gone to Bud's, quit during Hell Week. And he found out about my swimming background because I played water polo and swam in high school out in California. And he looked at me, please, summer and said, hey, do you want to be a Navy SEAL? And I literally looked at him and I said, I go, what the hell is a Navy SEAL? Again, there weren't any books. Well, there had been two books out on the teams, I believe, from two Vietnam vets. No movies. No one really knew anything about the teams at the academy other than a very select few. And uh, as soon as I was told about BUDS and especially Hell Week, a, a week without sleep, I thought, man, you're crazy. I could never do that. But as luck would have it, I got involved with a crew team and virtually everyone on the lightweight crew team at the time, they either wanted to be a Marine or a Navy SEAL. So the, the seed got planted my complete summer and then just kind of grew over the next four years and uh, went to many BUDS, airborne, tried out for scuba school um, and all those things. So it, it was not an easy decision to make because going to many BUDS and going through three weeks of uh, SEAL training, uh, it was a kick in the jimmy, as, as they say. And uh, I wasn't sure if I could last six months of, of basic underwater demolition training. But uh, like everything else, um, you got to have a motivation. For me, it was about following the career of a young officer named John Patrick Connors, uh, a lieutenant junior grade who actually was killed at Panama. His story inspired me enough to say, if I could spend the rest of my career working with men like the Navy SEALs, uh, I would never look back and have any regrets on my what what career path I chose. And that's ultimately why I made the decision to, to go to BUDS and, and become a SEAL. And so you were BUDS class, I think, of 179? 179, that correct? Yeah. that's correct. The last, the last hard class, I might add. <laughs> so I always ask Navy SEALs when they come on the show, what was one of the biggest lessons that you learned by going through BUDS? Attitude is everything, literally. Um, you go through training with Olympic caliber athletes. We had a guy that was on the National Water Polo Championship team, John Redmond. This guy was a fish, and he was your classic stereotypical frogman, about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, blonde-haired California surfer dude, and a, an amazing swimmer, but he couldn't run. He could not handle the runs, and the beat-up on, on the runs just crushed him. Um, they're really – seals come in all shapes and sizes from 5'5 five, five to 6'5 and everything in between, and you really can't – point out who's going to graduate and who's not. It really comes down to the internal fire. It's always uh, that that fire in the gut that everyone who gets through BUDS has because they haven't quite figured out formula to get someone through training. I mean, there's some basic things, obviously, but but it's it comes down to each individual. And at, at the end of the day, BUDS is very much an individual decision if you're going to make it or not, or if you're going to quit. And um, I think that's the one common denominator every team guy has is that there is literally no can't, no no can't, and no quit in the core ethos of, of anyone that uh, graduates blood training. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. All of the answers I've heard from the seals I've interviewed are different, but they all have a similar tone, and that is, no one can get through buds by themselves. Trying times end, and it's your attitude and your mindset that's got to take you through it because. You learn by going through everything. Even when you think your body is going to give up, you can power through. And I think for you, that has led you to do some pretty amazing physical feats after it. I, I remember one time we were talking and you said you used to do ultra marathon runs as an example. Can you just talk about those? And because I think it was about a hundred miles, wasn't it? Well, it wasn't runs. It was actually adventure racing. I was one of the early athletes in the sport called adventure racing. Actually, it was in the I got to race in the Eco Challenge in 1996. I was on active duty. I got invited to come out, try out for a team and uh, typical SEAL mentality. I I took over right away for the land nav portion. And I'm a young officer that just did what was natural to me. And right away, the other athletes were like, yeah, you're going to be our lead navigator for this this team. And uh, 
So I got involved in the sport for the next four or five years, and I was racing all over the world, Central and South America, Asia, and then I would uh, design courses. I designed the very first adventure race in, in Brazil, um, was involved with the Mile 7 Ultra Quest in China. So what BUDS teaches you is that what the mind can conceive, the body can achieve. It, back when people thought running a marathon was crazy, and then adventure racing, and then when you got to where each adventure race became from 300 miles, 200 miles to 300. And then the last race I did was a 514 mile race down in Brazil, which was a poorly managed uh, event because uh, I don't think anyone actually finished the 500 miles, but, but they kept just going, pushing the human mind and the human body further and further. And, and that's really what it's come down to. I, I think everyone realizes that there's no ridge line you can't accomplish. Um, you've got amputees that are doing double Ironman triathlons and whatnot. So really it's all a mental thing. It really comes down to that's what everyone in Buds gets, but that's not exclusive to being a SEAL. Anyone who's done these type of um, endurance events realizes it really comes down to the power of the body because you can get your body in the shape it needs to do to damn near accomplish anything if you have the right mindset and the right attitude. Yeah. And for those who may be tuning in and don't understand the different SEAL teams, the odd teams are on the West Coast and the even teams are on uh, the Atlanta coast and you were in SEAL Team 3. Can you talk about the different teams that are on the West Coast and what areas they serve? Back when I was in, every team had an area of orientation. Like SEAL Team 3 was the desert team. We went to the Middle East. SEAL Team 1 was the jungle team. They would go to South uh, Southeast Asia, the Philippines and Singapore, those regions. SEAL Team 5 was uh, the Northeast of Asia. So they would focus on cold weather and Alaska. Well, they train in Alaska, but they would go to Korea, generally. That was generally the dynamic. And then East Coast, you had SEAL Team 2 went to Europe. SEAL Team 4 was Central and South America. SEAL Team 8 was uh, Southern Med and Northern Africa. And then, of course, teams obviously have expanded since then. But after 9-11, all that went out with the bathwater in terms of where SEAL teams deployed to. It Pretty much, you can have any team from any any command, any coast going to the Middle East, going to Asia. So it, it, I think they're trying to get back to that area orientation. But it's the teams are different today and, and they train for a wide variety of deployments. Um, and especially in the 9-11 world, the majority of our deployment focus has been the Middle East for 20 odd years. Okay. And I remember when I was talking to a friend of both of ours, Chris Cassidy, he told me that generally you do workups for about 18 months when you're with the team prior to going on deployment, but that can change. But generally, is that the rule? I'd say it's a 12-month workup and then a six-month deployment. So you're in a platoon for 18 months. That's the, That was the general rule. Now, of course, a lot of that changed with um, the formation of uh, task forces and whatnot from post-9-11. So I can always speak to the 90s. because, But in the 90s, yes, it was an eight, basically an 18-month rotation per platoon. 12-month workup, six-month deployment, and then they'd recycle the platoon and you'd go right back into workup and then deployment again. Okay. And I remember you first went to... Uh Africa and Iraq before going to Afghanistan. And at one point you were in charge of all hostage rescues during probably the height of Al-Qaeda in, in, in Iraq. And I remember you and I having a conversation about it. And I was thinking that the hostage situation was going to be in the single digits, maybe 10, 15. And you said, no, you're absolutely Incorrect. There were about 400. And I don't think many people understand that. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Sure. And to be clear, what, what happened is I was, so I got mobilized after 9-11. Um, I, I did my SEAL team time. I did a platoon commander tour. And then I got out of the Navy in 1998. So I did seven years in. I was a civilian. I went and just finished a master's at University of San Diego and uh, basically an MBA 
an exec, a master's in executive leadership. And I was running a company in another SEAL um, on 9-11 itself. I was a civilian. And the attacks happened. And as soon as the second plane hit the building, I looked to my roommate, who was another SEAL Team 3 guy. And I, I looked at him and I said, I go Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And we both knew it because that was our SEAL Team 3. Had, I deployed to the Middle East. My first appointment was in 1992. Deployed to the entire region. Everyone from Qatar, Kuwait, Saudi, Egypt, uh, Pakistan, I mean, literally most of the countries in the region that we were uh, training with, I, I worked with them. And, uh, but again, on 9-11, I was a civilian. And I remember an email came out on 9-11 from the SEAL community saying, guys, we need you back. So I picked up a phone. I was back in the reserves within a week and then mobilized a month later and ended up at Special Operations Command Central in Tampa, Florida, how we met and why I still live here to this day. So I did two years at Special Operations Command as a Special Operations Liaison to the higher headquarters and a general Tommy Franks and then general Abizade coordinating everything that was happening for special operations, both special forces units, ODA, SEAL platoons and Rangers and the whatnot. And then I took a one assignment, a 120 day set of orders to Baghdad to work interagency coordination between our quote interagency partners, Department of State, the intelligence community, FBI, I actually flew the FBI team in the country. And we were supposed to just work between the interagency help coordinate between defense department, state department, justice, or the FBI, and then the intelligence community or the CIA. And uh, ultimately, first day on the job, kind of a message of Garcia moment. Um, I was literally at a, my second morning meeting of the day, and this whole mail ambassador was, staff was dealing with these two Bulgarian truck drivers that had been kidnapped in Mosul. And literally the chief of staff read off the list and said, uh, some guy named Zarkawi says he's going to cut their heads off unless the Bulgarians pull their troops out of Iraq. And he looks and he says, two envoys flying today to the embassy at noon. We need to brief them and tell them everything the U.S. is doing to save the lives of these two hostages. So the State Department guy looks at the only military guy in the room and literally said to me, quote, Dan, you're a Navy SEAL. Go call your friends. And I had not been in country more than 12 hours. I literally got in at midnight. It was in my second meeting of the day. And really didn't even know where the jock was or the joint operations center was at that moment. And, but I just took the mission, you know, I took the, took the assignment and uh, next thing you know, I started forming a committee called the hostage working group in the military. When you have a problem, you form a working group, you bring in bodies that are smarter than you to answer these questions. And that's how it got started. And by default, because I was the guy that built, brought everyone together from the intelligence community, special operations, the diplomatic community, and then just a range of military outfits. The hostage working group grew to at one point represented 30 odd entities across the spectrum from law enforcement through special operations. And then I just stayed on. I got hired as a GS to work directly for the ambassador and I stayed for 22 months. And over that tour, there were 448 international kidnappings over, the, over, the, over a two year span uh, and then thousands of Iraqi kidnappings. And so every day my phone blew up on a new kidnapping crisis and uh, I just, we, we built the operations intelligence fusion for all kidnapping incidents in Iraq that ultimately led to uh, some pretty high profile rescues or recovery efforts by, uh, by the by national forces, if you will. So no, I was not in charge of all hostages in Iraq. That certainly was the general and um, JSOC and those folks. But in terms of a coordinated element, yes, I, I did establish an entity called the hostage working group, which uh, became a, a blueprint for interagency cooperation, fighting a, an enemy like the kidnapping rings, because Al-Qaeda at the time, and now what we'll have in Afghanistan, kidnapping was a very effective tool for them. They used it for propaganda to instill terror. They used it to train millions, and I mean millions in ransom payments. So as I always say, we did not find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. 
But what we did find was a weapon of mass destruction. And that weapon of mass destruction was the kidnapping industry or the hostage taking industry that was proved vital for the insurgency in terms of how they were able to so effectively counter us and counter our message and destabilize our efforts to try and rebuild Iraq. Are you at liberty to discuss any of the kidnappings you worked on and and maybe a harrowing story about one? Well, God, yeah. And, and I've done, you know, there's been a couple locked up abroad. There was a locked up abroad episode about Thomas Hamill kidnapping. Thomas was a contractor that was taken hostage. He came back, but he helped. He basically rescued himself. He basically broke out of his cage and heard a convoy come by. So he self-rescued. It still was an amazing story. That was a case we worked. The Roy Helms case is probably one of the most fascinating Roy was a retired Navy man, a, a logistics officer who got hired by the Saudi Arabian company. He was kidnapped right on the eve of the Battle of Fallujah, uh, November 1 of 2004, if I got the date correct. And as soon as Fallujah kicked off November 4th, he disappeared. And literally, we had very little contact with him and only through a Filipino that was kidnapped with him at the same time because the kidnappers were actually talking to the Filipinos day, regularly about a ransom payment. And ultimately, it turned out that Roy was captured by the biggest kidnapping ring that ultimately became the biggest target for me over, over my two years is this one kidnapping ring in particular, headed up by, uh, if you can believe it, a, uh, a professor of Islamic studies at Baghdad University would be inviting Western journalists, journalists to his office and rail against the coalition and the infidels. And then the moment they walked out of his office, he would have his men kidnap these journalists from, say, France or Italy. Romania, and then he would charge multi-million dollar ransom payments to get these people released. So guy perfected a perfect business model. And uh, and we chased him for two years. And ultimately, Roy Hallams ended up in this same ring, was held by the same ring. And he wrote a book. I wrote the opening for his book, Buried Alive. And a fascinating book was supposed to be made into a movie that ended up being Ryan Reynolds. It was a movie called Buried. And Ryan Reynolds, largely, that's based on Roy Hallam. So there has been movies made out of some of these cases. And there was a character in the movie called Dan, named Dan Burke, who was a coordinator of the hostage working group. And the only thing that didn't match up with me is my last name's O'Shea and not Burke. But ultimately, there was a character based on my role in Iraq that ended up in, in the movie. So there's been stuff out there and, and whatnot. But uh, and, and probably the most fascinating, I think, the best case that uh, that Netflix did a series on called Captive, um, was the season one, episode eight, the Iraqi Christian peacemaker team. And I was interviewed in that with a number of the other folks involved, including the hostages, a couple of the hostages that were held, they were interviewed as well. And that goes into the depths of like trying to chase these kidnapping rings and the danger to non-government organizations or NGOs that are operating in these regions. But, uh, yeah, there's been a lot, a lot of history told on that. And then after when ISIS came back and got into the kidnapping game again, then I was interviewed multiple times on, say, CNN or MSNBC, and you can kind of Google those interviews to learn more if you want to. So people can get an understanding of the depth of your experience from 9-11 over a period of 10 years. How many deployments did you end up doing? Well, it, I mean, I did four and a half years of, of deployments over that decade. So you can drop it into whatever. I mean, I did a two-year tour in Iraq working kidnappings. I did some smaller deployments, three, four months at a pop, and then I did another 12-month assignment as a counterinsurgency advisor in Afghanistan. The interesting part about that, and that was my last overseas tour, short of a, a t- deployment to uh, Africa, which ended up being my last official military deployment before retiring. But the big change, and because we're going to lead into Afghanistan, and I would say that I got hired by a Green Beret, who I've known and respected for a long time, 
kind of a, a remarkable individual, 86 West Pointer named Roger Carstens. He is currently the U.S. envoy for all hostages around the world. He's could, there's no better man for the job. And he's, Roger is your classic uh, philosopher, poet, warrior. He's uh, deployed quite a bit, but he really understands policy. And he's, he's a true uh, patriot. And he brought me to Afghanistan as a counterinsurgency advisor in 2011 to serve for a full year, 12, 12 months as a coin advisor uh, for, at the time, General Allen. And uh, Roger made a, a comment to me coming over from Iraq. And I had a lot of time in Iraq at the time. And he said, Dan, understand something. Everything you learn in Iraq, put it in the backseat because Afghanistan is an entirely different animal. Iraq, you have three major tribal components between the Sunni, Shia, and the Kurds. But Afghanistan, he said, there's 12 plus different ethnic groups. And yes, there's the Muslim underlying thing. But again, it's so much more complex. He, as he said to me, Dan, you got your master's in counterinsurgency in Iraq. You're going to come get your PhD here in Afghanistan. And that was just probably the best way to kind of look at comparing Iraq to Afghanistan. Both challenging problem sets, but Afghanistan was a myriad of difficulties that uh, led largely up to what we have today on display because uh, baseline, 12 different ethnic groups, 12, 13 different ethnic groups. Each region is very, it's tribal. It's a completely tribal society. Most of the major parts of the country are living the same they have for thousands of years, except for the major cities, Herat, um, Kandahar, uh, Majri Sharif, Baghdad, uh, Kabul, excuse me, not Baghdad. And uh, other than that, the rest of the countryside, they live in mud huts. A farm, it's an agrarian culture, and it is truly the graveyard of empires, going back to Alexander the Great. Literally, no one in history, the greatest armies in the world, from Alexander the Great to the Brits, the Russians, and now us, have all been humbled by uh, people who wear literally flip-flops when they go into battle, literally. So you and I are actually speaking on the eve of the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, and we have... Some mutual friends, uh, Scott O'Neill, Coco, Mark, Ty, Tyson, uh, all of them, Army Special Forces, who were two of the first groups that went into Afghanistan. Uh, those guys are who are known as the Horse Soldier. Movie came out a few years ago, uh, 12 Strong, based on them. And can you kind of put this in perspective for people? Because when I look at that, three to six weeks, they go in and, and capture most of the Northern territory up through Kabul from the Taliban. And then an ensuing team captures the, the southernmost part. And from an outside looker looking in, you would think, oh my gosh, we won the war there. And then it goes on for 20 years and we end up losing it. But what were some of the dynamics that made it such, you know, you talked about some of them, but why was this such a tricky thing uh, for the United States to fight? Well, Listen, and I'm I'm a SEAL, so yeah, we we study unconventional warfare, but that is the bread and butter of the special forces. This is what these guys have been doing the, their entire history, going back to the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services during World War II. Obviously, they laid the footprint, ground print of this in Vietnam, and these guys are just this is what they do. And I was at Soxet with some fifth group legendary Vietnam era guys. I remember this warrant officer Jesse Northweather, uh, Northworthy, he was just a, this Bible of knowledge. And he literally said to me one time, almost in jest, and I thought he was joking, but literally it, it proved it proved true. In the beginning of the initial operational, we just sent a bunch of, literally a handful of ODAs. I mean, a, a handful of these special forces, and we're talking 10, 12 guys total that went in and embedded with each Northern Alliance, Alliance tribe. I believe there were seven tribes. So we had seven ODAs that went in initially and one ODA per tribe not only brought all the power of what the Green Berets brought, but they brought their communications, they brought a JTAC, and they brought the power of the air, of our Air Force. 
So they brought the ability to drop strategically. And even though some of these Northern Alliance elements they were attached to were only a couple hundred in initial days, they were able to take on a much larger Taliban force um, and start decimating the Taliban. And the tribal issues, um, again, which the Green Berets understand better than anyone, they were able, as the, as the Northern Alliance started gaining territory, and I remember that in about four months, and again, Scotty and those guys know the history better, but they literally turned the tide when days after 9-11, when they had the first, we had a map of Afghanistan, we broke it all up by who controlled what and what tribes controlled what. And the Taliban outnumbered the Northern Alliance by like seven to one. It was out, you know, it was a there was only about, and I can't remember the numbers, but I used to have a PowerPoint that had all this laid out. But the Northern Alliance were only like, say, 7,500 total. Taliban had like 40,000 fighters. But that's not the number, but it, it was that much of a differential. But every month, as the, as the Green Berets basically took the fight to the enemy on horseback, uh, using these JTACs, the Taliban numbers started to shrink. And a lot of these tribes realized, well, the Pashtunwali culture in the middle of a fight, if you realize you're getting your butt kicked, um, you can literally throw up your arms and say, okay, you got us, we'll join your tribe. And then the other tribe says, okay, you're now part of our tribe. So within four months, the numbers completely inverted, where the Taliban were basically down to like 10% compared to the 90% numbers that the Northern Alliance had. And that was done literally in the first few months of the war. And arguably, you could say, I mean, the special forces guys will tell you that we were winning the war when we left. And it wasn't until big army and conventional army came in that we started losing our way in Afghanistan. And again, that's not for me to argue. I'm not, I studied history, but that's going to be a, a, a discussion by actual historians. But what the Green Berets accomplished in the first four months of 9-11, after, right after 9-11, there's almost no equal in history to what those guys, the, that number of men uh, and what they were able to accomplish. So again, hats off to those guys and uh, their, their accolades were well-deserved. I think it leads to where we're going next in this because it, it is a perfect intro. Yes. So I, I wanted to get your direct experience when you were there, because I know you served with Afghani interpreters who, who were helping you out. And for someone who hasn't been in a war zone, who doesn't understand how vital they were, can you kind of just talk about some of your experiences and, and maybe the loyalty that they had? Uh, because they were putting themselves in constant harm's way. Absolutely. I mean, listen, a lot of Iraqis and a lot of Afghans, they totally bought into the, the promise of, of America, what America was offering, including democracy and these principles, right? They really bought into this and thousands, tens of thousands of them went above and beyond just believing in AUSA number one, but they fought alongside us. I mean, they literally, not only did they do in quote translations, they were literally at our sides. I mean, I'm alive because of my Afghan partners, my Iraqi partners. I, I took threats and took huge risk to go into certain areas of both Iraq and, and Afghanistan on the trust of having a, a local hire that would know when we needed to leave and get off the X, if you will. And every soldier that served made these kind of relationships that are the relationships built on, on, a, on a battlefield that they can be just as tight and just as powerful as your relationship you build with your fellow SEALs, or your fellow Green Berets, or your Rangers, or your, your Raiders, or your, your infantry Marines, or just Army infantry grunts. So these men in particular the men and, and women too, but especially the men that fought alongside our special operation forces, they became brothers for life. And that that is something that goes back throughout history because we know the numbers of those Green Berets. Dostum could have killed that ODA. He could have killed the men from 595 as soon as they arrived easily. I mean, he could have ransomed them for probably millions of dollars if he wanted to, but no, they believed in what the special forces were bringing and the Marines, the special forces fought alongside Dostum. Those bonds are irreplaceable. And that's a 
that's a relationship. You go to combat with someone, that's a relationship on a brotherhood level that, that you can't compare to anything, including buds or the Q force. You literally cement those relationships for life when you fight along someone in battle, regardless of where they came from regardless of the color of their skin. Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that 70% of individuals who do personal development, masterminds, and one-on-one -on -one coaching benefited from better work performance, increased communication skills, and overall better relationships. And we at PassionStruck are obsessed with self-development, coaching, and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource help you unlock your hidden potential because people doing great things in business and life are just like you only they've had a coach along the way and we've got that covered too let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them step into their sharp edges execute on their passion journeys and get predictable results time and time again go to passionstruck.com coaching right now and let's get igniting. You and I have known each other for quite a long time now, and I don't think I've ever seen you so exhausted as you've been for the past two weeks. And you told me it was like putting two hell weeks together because you literally didn't sleep for almost 10 to 12 days besides a cat nap here and there. So you ended up getting involved with Operation Pineapple Express. And if someone is unfamiliar with it, can you explain the origins of it? And then why you would have thought the higher ups, the government, the State Department would have been getting these Afghani allies of ours out. But instead, this Pineapple Express organization came into being to do just that. So I think it's really important for people to understand what happened. Well, listen, Pineapple Express, in fact, first off, I'm now having to go back and talk to the founder of it uh, and the guys that kind of brought it together because I was working on it for six, seven days and really didn't understand the origins other than being asked to help. Um, and that's how I got sucked in. Again, I know these special forces guys from the Tampa Bay area. They were having trouble trying to get their interpreters out. I personally, my two interpreters that I worked with in 2011-12, both have gotten out, one to Europe, one to Australia. No one reached out to me directly, but I knew that our guys were doing something and the two founders of the pineapple, ironically, it's a Green Beret and an ABC News producer named James Meeks. And the face of our organization has been a guy named Scott Mann, uh, David Scott Mann, a Lieutenant Colonel, Green Beret, seventh group, multiple deployments to Afghanistan, a couple to Iraq, and just classic Green Beret that spent virtually all of 9-11 deployed. And Scott and I uh, both knew this ABC reporter. He interviewed us roughly I don't know, a month and a half, two months ago, um, about looking back on 9-11, 20 years later. Well, within a week of that interview, um, obviously Kabul fell. And then uh, now we got all sucked into this. But the origins of pineapple, and again, I'm going to paraphrase what was related to me, Scott Mann and this journalist. And again, there's a lot of Afghan veterans that aren't just special operations guys or infantry grunts. There's journalists, there's people who worked in NGOs, there's anyone I consider that went to Afghanistan in the last 20 years is an Afghan veteran, right? And has established friendships and relationships. Well, the pineapple got origin came because both Scott Mann, Green Beret, and this ABC News reporter both knew an Afghan, I won't share too much, but they knew an Afghan partner who had been fought alongside with Scott. James knew him through his being over there in multiple deployments as a wartime correspondent. And they knew this guy was on, on the run for his life and was trying to get out because the Taliban had him on their target list. And he escaped from the north, flight down to Kabul, um, one step ahead of the Taliban. 
and ultimately where pineapple came into play is Scott and James started pulling guys into this chat room, if you will. And one by one, everyone started leveraging their own networks. And ultimately, this guy was at the airport, one of the tens of thousands, trying to get through the wire with the Marines and 82nd Airborne guarding. And because of the network that the pineapple, and it wasn't even called pineapple at that point, it was I don't know what it was called, but ultimately, someone in the network shared with our Scott and, and James and said, listen, tell your guy at that checkpoint with the Marines, the password is pineapple. So it was just a random word. It wasn't picked on anything, but so that guy got to the gate and one of thousands trying to get in said the word pineapple. And by the third time, the Marine looked up and goes, okay, he's vetted. He's one of ours. And that's how he got through it. Then the thread became TF pineapple. And so when I got sucked in, I don't know where I was. I was in the top 20, I believe that got sucked in to help. And I was helping another veteran I served with from Iraq. She was trying to get a senior level Afghan minister of defense individual out and she called desperate for help. And I said, hey, I got some Green Berets working it. Let me pull you in. And that's where Dan O'Shea got sucked in. And again, there was everyone independently. We're all trained for this. And we had, again, a lot of, you know, it was initially Green Berets, SEALs, Marines, um, infantry types. But then we started pulling in the human and former folks with intelligence background. So everyone brought something to the table. And all of us had contact with Afghans on the ground who were feeding us intelligence that we were then relaying. So we started building these communities of interest. And on the thread, the original task force pineapple thread that started growing because people started being added to the room, um, I realized, hey, we need a, we need an intel sharing thread. So I built one and then it became our info sharing thread, then a media thread. So it, so of our journalists, we need to have the messaging that we're putting out. So just independently, just because that's kind of the type of people we are, Scott Mann wasn't able to really push out guidance to anyone because Scott was in the middle of his phone blowing up and 24-7 ops. We all were. Everyone on these threads where you could be on the thread at two in the morning and people would be popping up like your threads were constantly popping up. So people were not, no one was sleeping. We had congressional staff from um, Colonel Mike Walsh, who was a representative in Northern Florida. His staff, um, when I got, she called me like four days into this on a question. She hadn't slept in a week. I think she had less sleep than me at that point. So it wasn't just, it started with special forces and then it just grew from there. Well, special forces and a journalist, and it grew from there. And everyone brought something to the table to where ultimately we did get a couple of folks on the ground. But the irony of Task Force Pineapple is everyone thinks that a bunch of SEALs and Green Berets were in Afghanistan running around the back streets of Kabul, picking up Afghan partners to get him across the wire. We all did this on our cell phones back here in the States, but we had networks in country, including Afghans. And the real heroes of this story, frankly, are the Afghan partners who were risking their lives to get our Afghan partners out where they could have said, no, I'm going to get out too. And some of these people are still helping us to this day. So uh, the story is incredible. It will be told, but it, it really was a very much a grassroots crowdsourcing effort that just grew exponentially. And again, Task Force Pineapple is one of many organizations. We're not the only ones. There was digital Dunkirk. There was some Facebook pages, but it was virtually Afghan veterans, men and women across all type of MOSs, military occupational specialties from intelligence to special operations to everything in between, to journalists that just had a good network and contacts. And everyone was leveraging relationships to get things done. And that's the beautiful story because it it is remarkable what we what we accomplished. And uh, the, the the term is we've shepherded a lot of these lost flocks or sheep to safety. And that's that's ultimately what what the end state was, is to get these people out. Well, I'm going to ask you here in a second to describe 
how you got a family of 14 to 16 out. But before I do, I just wanted to understand more. I would have thought that the Department of Defense or the State Department or some government agency would have been going in and shepherding these vital Afghani allies out. Why didn't that happen? That's not a question to ask me because a lot of us ask ourselves that question. That probably needs to come out of some congressional hearings, to be frank, because uh, what we were getting from the, on the ground was just absolute utter confusion and no order. I mean, there were conflicting messages being passed from State Department to American citizens, passport holders and otherwise. For example, they kept pushing out that we're working with our Taliban partners to let anyone with an American passport or a SIV application to get through and get to the airport. Yeah, we're getting reports from our Afghans that said, the Taliban won't let us get to the gate. I mean, they're being threatened, beaten. So what was being pushed out out of Washington in terms of how things were so copacetic at the airport, we're working through with our new Taliban partners. Yet you have guys like me and others on the ground are like, I don't trust anyone associated with the Taliban and never would. And we also had the facts that Taliban were not helping. They, you know, So there was a lot of conflicting things. Now, the, the reality is Task Force Pineapple isn't going to get in the weeds because ultimately we've got to work within the system to get our people out because we got 700 people out in one week. Amazing story. Other groups got out thousands too, but we all have thousands more that are still on a, you know, that are SIVs that work with us. So as Scott Mann said the day after when we had our first real conference call, because we went, I went a week without any type of guidance from anyone. We all operated independently to do the job to get it done. But when we had our first phone call, Scott put out the message to everyone and said, hey, guys, we got 700 out, but there were thousands we didn't. We have more work to do. So we're still very much in the fight. And we're still, we've got a lot of people that are relying us and their very lives are in the, in the balance right now. So there's a lot of challenges working through state and diplomatic issues. But it's one thing to get a family across the border into safety. But then what if you get them across the border into Pakistan and then, you know, they're, they're out of money, which is the case for a lot of these families. Or what have we really done for them if we've gotten them into a country where there's no acknowledgement or recognition? And there's a lot of challenges. And I'm not putting this on DOD or state because this is not easy to do. But uh, we just saw a gap that needed to be filled. And we stepped up to the plate, as Scott has said time and time again. We're doing this to honor the promise we made to these people, uh, these, these Afghan partners who risked their all for us. And they understand leave no one behind. And that's kind of the story that I got sucked into about the family I got out. And I can share that because I think that goes to the very crux of the challenge that, that everyone is facing right now in Afghanistan, desperate to get out. Yeah, I, I think it's a harrowing story. Happened to hear it on Saturday. And just the emotion you told it with was, was just gut-wrenching. So I think it's important for people to hear this story. Well, let me begin. So when I got sucked into this, um, the timeline was simply... Um, Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 
93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. Friday, two weeks ago, I was asked, I, I knew that these guys were working. I knew that Green Braves were working on getting Afghans out. I was at a, um, a Women in Defense luncheon in Tampa. I shared with the room at the end, I said, hey, we're working to get our Afghan partners out if you've got these challenges. And got together with folks in the room. One guy relayed that an Afghan army uh, captain female that had worked for him, worked alongside him for, for a year, had told him multiple times, hey, you got to get me out of here because when America leaves, the, the Taliban will kill me. And he found out the day prior that this young Afghan captain, female, had been murdered the day before in front of her family. So we knew the stakes were high. We knew that Afghans were being targeted and killed. So for us, it was a sense of urgency from day one. And literally Saturday morning, I get a phone call from a friend asking for help. I got plugged in the network then. Sunday morning, and let me step back, at that Women in Defense meeting, a woman from Special Operations Command said, hey, we're in the building. We're probably going to track that. I gave her my card. She was in the J-35 ops plans. And Sunday morning, she called me at 7 a.m. and said, hey, we, I have a captain that needs, needs, is interested in what you guys are doing. Can you call him? So Sunday morning, I called this captain up and I said, hey, sir, I understand you're running the operational planning team. And when you say captain in 06? Navy captain. Navy captain. I, I thought, okay, this SOCOM must be tracking this. And I said, you must be running the OPT. And he said, no. We don't have an OPT, but he goes, I heard you're getting your interpreters out. Can you help me get mine out? I'm like, okay. So I got a request from SOCOM two weeks ago to help get a get an interpreter out. So again, the private sector is already leaning forward and getting stuff done when the public sector is dragging its feet, if you will. Anyways, I'm not going to get into that conversation. But what I'll say is by Monday, I got handed what we needed were shepherds, people who could guide these families to safety, who had a way of the land of Kabul in particular at that time. And I've been to Kabul many times, flown into the airport multiple times. So I was handed a family, uh, an American Afghan passport holder. He All I knew was that he worked with the Special Forces, 3rd and 7th Group for three years, and with the DEA for seven. That's all I knew. knew nothing more about the gentleman. And I won't use his name, but I knew that he fought alongside us. And that's all it took for me, because I've worked with others that have got citizenship, and they have earned it. These Afghan and Iraqis who have literally fought alongside us, taking risk every day. They earn and understand that what that blue passport means more than anyone. And I was just texting with a guy and getting updates from him constantly. And every time he'd get to a checkpoint, they would say to him, well, you can get on the shuttle to the terminal because you have a blue passport and your wife and your two boys do, but your family cannot. And he included his parents, his brothers, sisters, and their children, 14 total, including five kids under the age of nine and two baby twin boys that were born three weeks prior. So literally two babies in swaddling clothes. And every time this guy would trudge to these checkpoints, because what you had at Kabul International Airport, four or five checkpoints, and it's a pretty big airport, and one checkpoint would open, and there'd be thousands rushing to the gate. They would shut that gate off and then open up another on the other side of the airport, which meant people had to go navigate through these checkpoints, Taliban checkpoints, the crowds, rush hour traffic. It was a nightmare, and it's 120 degrees right now in Kabul this time of year. So 
you imagine a family of three generations trying to move from checkpoint to checkpoint, constantly being denied access. Ultimately, the one good thing about helping this Navy captain at SOCOM is he started helping us. They built up a channel. So we were communicating with SOCOM, giving them updates because we had probably better intel than they did on the ground because we were getting it live from our Afghans on the ground. And as we all know, SOCOM and the military and their intelligence community, we pulled all of our assets out. So we were providing updated intel to everyone and we were getting our people out. So there was this working relationship established with the military here in Tampa, thank God. And at one point I got a document that the captain had signed off about, um, and I just copied it and made it my own, but I built a, a ledger on a SOCOM letterhead on this family to say this individual and his entire family are authorized to get through the wire because they've worked for us and have the paragraph. So I built the document. I sent it to my counterpart. Let's, let's call him Samer. And, um, well, and let me just stop you there because it's not as if it just took you like 15 minutes to do it. It took you hours because you had to fill in all the information to make sure it was accurate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Trust me. It took like two and a half hours. And I was doing this on, I think the second night up on two hours of sleep on day two of this whole mess. And uh, I remember talking to him because I had to get this information with, with him and he never slept because he was up all hours of the day, five, six hours ahead of me. And he was constantly responding to my texts. And again, it was a collaborative effort. I wasn't the only person helping him. There was a team of us in these, in this chat room helping him. And, uh, but I got the document to him and I said, make sure this is on your phone. Don't have a paper copy because the Taliban find SOCOM letterhead on you, like a piece of paper that had Special Operations Command, that's a death sentence. They would have executed him on the spot. But the challenge was for him to get close enough to the gate to show a soldier on his phone, a four-inch screen, hey, I've got this document from SOCOM. I worked with you guys. And again, because everyone coming up to the gate is telling every Marine or 82nd Airborne, save me, save me. So ultimately, uh, after the second day of him not getting through, even getting up to the gates, because he's constantly getting pushed away, and the Haqqani network had brought purportedly 8,000 fighters that were putting a noose around the airport every day. It got tighter and tighter. And at one point, I remember the second night late, it was well after midnight, and I'm texting him. And I, I realized as the intel is coming in that more and more people were not getting through the wire unless you had a quote, everyone had an American passport. And even then, they were getting turned away. I knew the challenges for him to save his whole family were almost impossible. And I remember trying to, how do you say this to someone you barely know? You've known for 36 hours, and I'm texting him. And I'm trying to do the Sophie's choice. I'm trying to say, hey, you know, you got to figure out who you can save at this point. Because in my mind, I already knew that his family's probably not going to get across the wire. I said, you got to think about who you can save at this point. And what he said to me, it just uh, just cemented why I was like everyone else on the task force was doing this on no sleep and doing everything we could. Because he said to me when I said, you got to make a decision who you can save at this point. He goes, Dan, he goes, my father made me the man I am today. I'm not leaving him, my mother my brother, my sisters, or their children, would you? And I'm a SEAL, right? We have a combat record. We've never left a man behind on a battle ever. That's our legacy. And it means something to me going to ranger school where I recited it every day. I will never leave a man behind on the field of battle. And I believe in that. This is not a a talking point or a tagline that's coming out of the talking heads in DC. This guy, it meant the same to him as it means to a SEAL, Green Beret, Ranger, anyone. And I said, to, I said to him, no, I would stay too. And he said to me, well, then you are my brother and you understand. He goes, if we die, we die together. And I, I swear that I, I just made a commitment. I said, I'm going to do whatever is in my power to get you out and your family. Again, stayed up all night, got that document prepared. 
sent it back to him. The next day, he gets to a checkpoint. I think it was Abbey Gate. I'm not sure. I think it was Abbey. And Abbey, as you know, was kind of that, that shit show gate that had thousands of people on it trying to get through. And as he got up to, with an eyesight of the 82nd Airborne Soldier, he can see the, the, the checkpoint. He's almost there, but the Taliban have this line. And he's dressed like every, every other local. And he gets up there with his entire family, tries to get through the Taliban, who are being, the world's being told that Taliban are letting these people through, and they're not. And in fact, he gets up there and the Taliban guy says, no one's getting through here. And he pulls out his blue passport same blue passport you have and I have. It says, I'm an American citizen. The Taliban looked him in the eye and said, I don't care if you're George W. Bush. You're not getting to that fucking gate. And then started to beat him and his family, right? And they just beat a retreat. They had to go back. Well, anyways, the irony of this throughout this all day process, and this whole, this was a day that I did not go to sleep throughout the whole day. I kept in comms with him. At one point, there was a gate near his house. It was unoccupied, but I didn't have anyone on the ground at the time to go check that gate out. And I knew exactly what gate it was. It was called the OGA gate. Uh, and even he knew what it stood for, other government agencies. And I had flown into that terminal once before, so I knew exactly what he was talking about. He said, no one's there. If someone can just open the gate, just unlock the gate, we can get in. Well, I called the Pentagon hotline. I called CENTCOM hotline. I called the SOCOM folks. and No one could get me in comms with someone in Kabul at the airport. And so, again, I just trying to rely on our government solution. There was no solution, right? And ultimately, my phone had been blown up all weekend from people calling to try and get their folks out. And an old Army buddy, I trained with him in my SEAL platoon literally 30 years ago. He called me up and said, hey, bro, I got troops. I'm trying to get out. What are you doing? I said, shit, get involved with Task Force. Find up with me. Um, we're, we're working this, uh, this issue, and we can, we can probably get you added to the mix. And I talked about my challenge trying to find someone on the uh, – on the task force, uh, on the compound, on Kabul itself. And he said, he goes, hell, bro, my, uh, my nephew's at 82nd Airborne. He's in the jock right now, and I'm talking to him on a, on a secure comm net. I said, holy crap. I go, can you put me in comms? He goes, yeah, wait one. A second later, I'm in direct comms with an 82nd Airborne. Wow. Sergeant. And I said, listen, I got a pin drop. Can you check out this gate? It's called the OGA gate. I said, can you look it up for me? He goes, and this is now about 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock his time. So it's nighttime. And he goes, I go, I got a family five meters walk, 500, 500 meters from there. They can be there in 10 minutes if you get the gate open. He goes, hey, hold. He goes, get the family ready. He goes, let me go check it out. I'm sitting there, bated breath. I texted, you know, Samer and I said, hey, get your family ready. Stand by. He goes, we're ready. And I'm getting ready to go. Oh, my God, I'm going to get him out. I'm going to get him out. Sergeant comes back 20 minutes later and goes, damn, sorry, man. That place is crawling with Taliban. We, we can't. They own that gate. I said, damn it. You know, five hours earlier. No one was there. And now the Taliban are tightening that noose. Yeah. And can you explain one thing? Because I understand some of our coalition partners, uh, like the British and the French and others, were actively sending special forces teams in yeah. to get their people out. But the United States didn't do that. That is correct. They were denied the ability by our own government. And like I said, I'm going to stay out of the politics of that. that there will be a time for that discussion. But yes, the British and the French the French were going outside the wire to get French nationals back and we were not. So um, that's a decision made at the administration. So they, yeah, I'm they, just saying, because at this point it, it could have been a team could have been sent, grabbed them from that gate, brought them back in. Didn't happen. So now you're looking at yet another solution to, to, to come up with, to send this family. So to get to proceed um, later on, we found out a gate called the MOI gate was open. 
and it was not jammed with thousands of people. This is now the middle of the night. So this Samer and his family have been going gate to gate now for almost three days, four days straight with no success. They're exhausted, as you can imagine. But I, I get him to a gate. We've got a guy there that says, no, they should be good to go. And then he gets to the gate and I get a text that the driver and he gave me his name. He said he went to look at my phone. I can't get my family on. He'll only let me on and not my whole family. And I'm thinking, shit, we're almost there. And I'm and I'm I shot out to the net going, hey, this guy driver, Hadari, won't won't let him on the bus. Someone in our network, and I as I recalled it, it was the sergeant, but someone immediately popped up and said, Hey, I got his cell phone. Here's his WhatsApp number. Give him a call. So literally at 2:30 in the morning, day three into this mess, I get a hold. <laughs> I call on WhatsApp. It rings, rings, and hello, hello. And I said, Hadari, yes, sir. I said, and I told you I had a document signed by this captain at SOCOM. So I identified myself as captain so-and-so from U.S. Special Operations Command. And I said, I have signed a document. I want this individual, Samer, and his entire family on that next bus that goes to the terminal. Do you understand me? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I go, I will forward these documents to you. And sure enough, on WhatsApp, I was able to send him the document that I wrote and signed or that I impersonated, if you will. But I said, I'm sending you the SOCOM document and then all the passport photos, which is what I did. And I thought it was a done deal. The guy assured me he'd get him on the next bus. I texted Sam I said, my friend, he has your information. He's got all your passport photos of your entire family. You will be on the next bus. I, I think we're there. So obviously, Sam excited. He's over the moon. He's very thankful. I asked him about his family. He sends me pictures of the two twin boys. He said, everyone's tired, but we're safe. And we feel safe here. And I said, well, just stay there. You'll be out of there. The bus will be back within the hour or so I thought. So at this point, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've done everything I can do. I think we're good. I put the phone on my chest. I pass out for two hours, almost two hours. I wake up frantically at 429 in the morning, look at my phone, hoping that I've got some word that he's inside the wire. And it's no, it's Dan. The, the bus never came back. Dan, they locked the gate. Dan, like, what do we do now? And I'm looking at this phone, realizing, oh, my God. I said, I, one, I thought I was now talking to a dead man because now I knew that there was no more options that day to get anyone with no proper paper to get inside the wire. That Abbey Gate was a non-starter because it was, we had a suicide bomber threat there for a full two days now. And the only way to get to Abbey Gate, to the front of the gate, if you saw that canal that went all the way around the airport, that canal was raw sewage. And we were, our other shepherds were telling their guys, if you want to get to the front of the gate, the only way past the checkpoints where the Taliban are going to stop you, past the 5,000 people trying to get to the front of the line, the only way you can walk up to the gate is to walk through that mile of shit, like Shawshank's redemption, right? And at that point, I can't send a family with three generations, grandparents and grandkids, a mile through a shit river, if you will. And I, in my heart, I said, oh my God, me falling asleep for two hours. I was beating myself up going, man, you, you did a week without sleep and hell week. Why can't you stay awake for two more hours, Dan? And I'm about to have to text this family to say, I can't help you anymore. You've got to go home. And I was literally going like at the lowest of, of the previous now, I guess, three and a half days at this point. I, uh, as I was about to send him home, I get a text popped up in my, the other thread. And it was, a young, it was a girl that was helping us, Sandra. I, don't even, I didn't know anything more about her. She said, what's the update on Sam and the family? We haven't heard from them in a couple hours. I said, the bus never came back. The gate's locked. I said, I'm about to send him home because I can't send him to Abbey Gate. And she popped up. She said, hold one. Four minutes later, she pops up with a pin drop and says, Dan, this is the Northwest Gate, which at that point I'd never known of or even heard of it. 
She goes, it's open for another hour. They, they have to get here now. And she said, this gentleman, this guy, this soldier will be waiting for them. She sends me a picture of the guys taking a quick selfie with just his chest body armor, where he had his American flag right here on his chest. And where the stars are supposed to be was the emblem for the 75th Ranger Regiment. So this guy was a ranger and I'm a ranger, right? I went to ranger school and I said, holy shit. Oh my God, we got a ranger, man. We're going to pull this off because rangers leave no man behind on, a, on, on the field of battle. So I immediately texted Samurai. I said, Samurai, you've got to start moving now. This is the Northwest Gate. It's open for another hour. I know you're exhausted, but you've got to go. Your entire family, you need to go right now. And then I sent him the picture. I said, this soldier is waiting for you. You must find this soldier. So over the next hour, I'm texting him. He, he's going, well, there's Taliban. I said, get through the checkpoint. I'm, I'm, the whole way, I'm just encouraging. About an hour into it, right at the window when he's almost time's up, he goes silent on me for about, I don't know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and then pops up and says, we found your friend. He got my entire family through the wire. We've all cleared the biometric scan. We're waiting for a shuttle. And I'm going, oh, my God. Okay, we're inside the wire. We're not there yet. Another hour goes by. One line text. We're on the shuttle. Another 45 minutes later, the last text. And we've got through the second screening at the terminal. We are inside. We are being manifested for a flight tonight to Qatar. You have saved my entire family. God bless you and God bless America. And John, I lost it because I was like so mentally wiped out at that point. I was just, but I was euphoric because I thought I had been talking to a dead man for three days because all the other threads that I'm following are bad news stories. People cannot get through. People were being executed. So, and I say that, and I shared this with uh, my team. And obviously, uh, I, in fact, I called Sandra, you know, and I said to her, I said, hey, I don't know where you're at. I don't know who you work for, but you saved that man's life and three generations of his family. And we both had, a, it was emotional because we were, she goes, you know what, Dan, thank you so much. Because that's, that's the only good news I've heard in the last like two days or three days. And I said, I hear you. So I share that story because we owe this guy not just because he's an American citizen, but he is someone who's bled for us and fought alongside my brother in the Green Berets, served alongside our law enforcement, men, men and women in blue. He honored that code, leave no one behind to his own family that sets a far better example that was being currently set by our own administration and commander chief at this point. With, again, don't want to get any more politics on it, but um, we do have an honor to these people. Um, not every one of them, trust me. I, I'm not saying open borders and let every Afghan in, but we've got an open border to the south that we're literally sending plane loads and truck loads to get these people spread out across America. And none of those people coming from Central and South America or elsewhere, they haven't done anything for this country. They haven't bled for this country. They haven't fought for our principles. But our Afghan partners who served alongside our, our military men and women, our special forces, our SEALs, our Green Berets, our Rangers, our MARSOC Raiders, they have fought and served alongside us for these principles that we most Americans don't even understand him. I mean, freedom of expression, bill of rights. I mean, these people are desperate for this. And, and these men and women in Afghanistan went above and beyond. And that's why we have a moral imperative to honor our promise we made to them. And our nation made this promise. Our politicians, our presidents, our general officers made these promises. And they need to do a better job because what was on display the last two weeks made me, frankly, ashamed of being an American. But I will honor my own code and my own values, which every man and woman in pineapple. And frankly, John, I don't even know the total number of people who have helped us because it is in the hundreds and we're not alone. It's not just us. There's hundreds of, of others out there, thousands of veterans that are doing the right thing to try and get these people back. 
And um, I, I'm just a small cog in a, in, in a big part of this wheel. And I just have one story. And it took me 96 odd hours to get one family out. We still have a lot of fox out there that need help and need shepherds and, uh, and need, need our mental and moral support. Well, what an incredible story. And thank you for sharing it. I know it's not easy to share. It's very emotional, but it, it just puts it into perspective. If you think that there were 700 people who we did get out, how many more stories were like that? And unfortunately, how many more stories where they weren't able to get through? I mean, I know there's uh, still people as we speak, trying to get out airplanes stuck on the ground and, and other things. So more work to be done, but God bless you for, for, for what you did. And I did want to allow you to maybe explain the map behind you because it's a it's a map of Af- Afghanistan. And I know you can't go into it too much, but can you talk about the company that you work for and, and basically what they do? Because I, I think it's a very interesting veteran-owned and operated company. Sure. So I'm I'm a member and a, a, a plank owner in a company called Equitus, and originally SC2. And it was the brain trust brainchild of a guy I served with at Soxent, a, um, at the time a major Gidry, who's now Brigadier General Gidry. He's a National Guard general officer in the Army, Army Guard. And uh he built this vision, this company uh, built this vision for exactly what is on display in Afghanistan. So we are a big data scraping um, company that can take volumes of data and replicate it on what we're building as a common operating picture. Because right now we're doing all this on our cell phones. So everyone is staring at a phone, trying to coordinate amongst multiple lines of effort, where our goal is that we're going to be able to represent that up on a screen and everyone can get a big picture of everything going on and get a picture of Afghanistan from okay. Major lines of communication. What are the exfil, infill routes, airports, uh, hospitals, ATM machines, bazaars where people can get food, um, hospitals, you name it. So, and border and border crossings and Taliban checkpoints and other things like that, where we want to have it interactive. That is all this intel is coming in from the ground. When it gets vetted, we can replicate that up on the big screen and make it easier for kind of the big picture. Um, Because right now, uh, everyone involved in Pineapple is doing this. We are raising money. And uh, the, the website to date was operationrecovery.org. But we have now, um, our leadership just came back from a meeting with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff this past, I think, Tuesday in D.C. or Wednesday. And we are now going to try and formalize a private and public partnership um, between these veteran efforts and the, the government efforts. Because it, the reality is the average Afghan passport holder, be it a blue passport holder, green card holder, or SIV special immigrant visa, they don't have a lot of trust and faith right now in our own government. And we do have that trust and faith. So we are that bringing that seam and gap to hope find a solution because ultimately we're going to need the State Department to be on the receiving end when we get these people out of country. So we can't choose who we work with. We have to work in a collaborative environment um, in rice bowls and, and make it happen. In my time in Iraq, I dealt with a lot of uh, interagency food fights and there will be that in the future. But but we have to come together as a nation to do this, both our Defense Department, Department of State, Department of Homeland Security, and then these private sector efforts that are that are working literally around the clock over time and uh, just trying to do the right thing. So for those who are listening, what I'm holding in my hand is a book that was gifted to me by Dan called The Trident, written by one of the SEALs that he talked about earlier on, Jason Redman. And to me, when when I first picked up the book, the, the thing that was most amazing to me is you go through the first few pages and it's all the, the SEALs who have died over the course of the war on terror. 
And so one of the things, Dan, that I wanted to recognize you for is that here in Tampa, and it's now grown to other cities across the United States, you started a charity organization called the Frogman Swim. And I was hoping you could just talk a little bit about that, the purpose of it, uh, and, and what it's aiming to do in the benefit of Navy SEALs and their families. Sure. Well, we probably should do a podcast on that because that's there's a lot of stories to that. But essentially, the Tampa Frogman Swim that started um, the idea from a young kid that I'd mentored from about age 12 until I got into high school and he wanted to go into the SEAL teams. And it was his idea to swim across Tampa Bay to honor a naval, another Naval Academy graduate, Dan Knossen. Dan was a Navy SEAL lieutenant, SEAL Team 1. On his first mission in country, he stepped on a landmine and lost both legs and was as... Uh, Sam Young, Sam Farnham had read, had been fighting for his life at Walter Reed to try and save, save himself. And so it was this young man's idea to swim across Tampa Bay. And I uh, put out the word to a handful of SEALs and that, seal, that email went viral. And instead of just having five, 10 SEALs show up on year one, we had uh, 39 swimmers, 42 kayakers, and about 25 volunteers. So about 100 souls showed up on the beach on January 2nd, 2010. And now we're going in year 12 and it's grown every year. We've doubled the numbers um, of swimmers to we cap it at 175, generally on average about 150 every year. But we get repeat swimmers. We had a handful swim every year and the, the fundraising, everyone swims on behalf of one of those fallen Navy SEALs and they reach out to friends and family. And we have fundraisers. We have individuals that are bringing on average, like 2,500 is on the low end. We get about five grand per swimmer raised by these swimmers. But we've had an individual like bringing 80,000 uh, of his own money from one swimmer plus one team is bringing in like three, four hundred thousand dollars one page in his team. It's insane. It's just incredible. And we have a lot of gold stars now that have come out. They've formed their own teams. Um, uh, the Feeks family for uh, Patty Feeks to honor him. So it's just an incredible event. And we have almost a thousand people involved in this effort every January, um, second or third Sunday in every January. And uh, we welcome people to come out, especially if you're in the Tampa Bay area. Or you want to come to Tampa and either swim or volunteer, but um, it's a great event. And to date, is raised as as last I checked. I think we're over uh, over five million, and I think we're over the six million dollar mark money that has been raised for the Navy SEAL Foundation. So it's um, it takes care of those families that are fallen, and takes care of our wounded, and uh, it just does some remarkable things for the and and honors the service and sacrifice of uh, some men that uh, and brothers that, that that gave their last full measure. Of devotion for this country. Yeah, amazing. And now I, I remember just a few months ago, you were up in Boston where they have also started uh, one of these. Are there other cities that are doing it as well? So San Francisco had a swim um, that ultimately just the race director got sick. So that we, we shut down the San Francisco swim a couple years ago. Boston is in year three. And even though um, right now that's our only other uh, affiliate swim, but the, the Aaron Vaughn swim got started. I invited the Vaughn family to the Tampa Bay Frogman swim year two, year three. And then they started their own swim. And now the Honor Foundation run by Matt Stevens, another Naval Academy graduate of uh, 1991 and my buds class 179. They are doing a honor swim out in San Diego coming up in a week or two. So we, we, we were the first one that I know of that on the block, but now that we've spawned other swims around the country. So I just, I just think it's awesome. And the more the merrier as far as I'm concerned. Well, well, Dan, I'll, I'll end there. And I think it might be a great idea to do a whole segment on the Frogman Swim and, and maybe bring in multiple people who've been involved with it. So, but Love thank that. you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today and telling that amazing story. Uh, and thank you for 
your service throughout all that time and making that commitment to come back on active duty, which turned out to be a very heroic 10 years of your life. I would do it all over again in a heartbeat, as, as would everyone else I know and serve. I'm not sure about you, but I was left breathless several times during that story that Dan just told. Such an incredible example of a bunch of veterans and other communities who have come together at a time of need to help these vulnerable Afghani allies of ours who were trying to leave the country before the changed hands of the Taliban. And it's remarkable how many of them are still there trying to get out. As always, I wanted to thank all of you for taking the time with us today in our mission of making passion go viral for millions everywhere. Today's episode is exactly why we do this show. And if you truly love today's episode, would you please forward it to people who need to hear the message that Dan gave today. And if there's a person that you would like me to interview or a personal topic that you would like me to talk about, you can always DM me at John R. Miles. And if you haven't checked our YouTube channel out, which has over 175 different videos on it, ranging from overcoming adversity to assistance with relationships, personal growth, peak performance, and so many others, you can check it out also at John R. Miles. Thank you so much for supporting us in this incredible journey that we're on. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us. 